this had been a missing person case for six years, and there was a lot of investigation done. In fact, Chief Barnes at the time called it the most extensive missing persons investigation in history. I only first learned about this case when uh, you know I came onto the department, and especially you know when I came up to the detective bureau back in 2001. You know, when I was in patrol, I kind of knew about it, too, because I knew that, uh, you know, Eddie Matthews and Janet Matthews were up here working on it as well. Uh, but my first involvement came when I came up to the Detective Bureau. And you are in charge of the Crimes Against Persons Unit. Am I saying that correctly? Yes. The Akron Police Department's unsolved cases inhabit a closet on the sixth floor. Almost every case fits neatly inside a five-inch binder. Typed witness statements, evidence lists, maps, coroner's reports, detectives working theories. Recently, a particularly stubborn case filled three entire binders. Imagine how much information might be contained in a stack of typed sheets more than a foot tall. But there is an investigation in this closet barely contained by ten binders. If there is a cold case in this city's history that has consumed more resources, more hours, more effort, no one can name it. From Ohio Mysteries, the Akron Beacon Journal, and Ohio.com, this is Elusive Justice, the story of Ricky Beard and Mary Leonard. I'm Stephanie Warsmith, a reporter at the Akron Beacon Journal for more than 20 years, including a decade covering crime and courts. And helping with this three-part series, which is covered in this podcast, as well as stories in print and online, are Ohio Mysteries co-host Paula Slice and Steve Yoder, and Beacon Journal photographer Mike Cardew. Now, Elusive Justice Part 3, Theories. How did you become a police officer? Did you go out um, playing cops and robbers and you were the cop? That's funny you say that, because that's what I, I always wanted to be the cop. I didn't want to be the bad guy. We're talking to Lieutenant Dave Whitten. He's in charge of homicide investigators at the Akron Police Department. They call it the Crimes Against Persons Unit. Maybe it was his destiny. Whitten's uncle was Harry Whitten, who served as Akron's chief of police for a record 20 years. You know, I never knew him as a chief of police. He was... You know, my Uncle Harry, and he was just a great man, great person. You know, one of the things he told me when we were kids is, look, I, I never, there was never a day I didn't like coming to work. Whitten wanted a job like that. He joined the force in 1992. And I, I'm glad I did. It was the best decision I've ever made. I think having been, been from Akron meant a lot, uh, you know, just growing up here. Been born and raised here. I, I, you know, I love this city. You know, I've working for this. I've loved working for this department. I mean, like I say, you, you hit it right on the head. I always wanted to be the the cop and the cops and robbers. And uh, you know, I, I just hate crime. You know, dealing with crime victims all these years. I hate what it does to people and how vulnerable it makes you feel. And uh, especially in this city. 
and Wooden hates that after 40 years, his department still can offer no justice to the families of Mary Leonard and Ricky Beard. He's sitting at a long conference table on the sixth floor of the Harold K. Stubbs Justice Center in downtown Akron. There's a door in this room that opens to a long, narrow closet filled with shelves. Everything Akron officially knows about the Beard and Leonard case is kept here. On a Friday night in August of 1979, the teen sweethearts left their home in Akron's North Hill neighborhood and went on a date to a drive-in theater. They left early, telling friends at the drive-in they needed to make Mary's midnight curfew. Their friends never saw them again. Their disappearance grew into six years of misery and conjecture for their loved ones until a backhoe operator digging a ditch through Akron's Merriman Valley discovered their bones in 1985. In this episode, we explore the investigative teams that tried to solve this mystery over the past four decades and the three theories that have risen to the top. The motorcycle gang, the angry homeowner, and the serial killer. Theory number one, the motorcycle gang. It was one of the earliest theories favored by those who investigated the case in the 1980s though Akron police rarely spoke about this or any theory in the past. The first time they publicly suggested a motorcycle gang had entered the narrative was in a newspaper article on the 10th anniversary in 1989. Summit County Coroner William Cox noted how Ricky had been shot at least twice and Mary had been shot three times, as well as stabbed and beaten. When you see that kind of overkill, you think of a motorcycle gang killing, he said. They will shoot you multiple times and stab you multiple times. Akron Detective John Bailey was also very general in explaining the theory. He said there were suspicions Ricky was involved in minor drug activity on the basis of the marijuana cigarette butts found in his car's ashtray. But he noted that Mary Leonard had nothing like that in her background, so it was hard to imagine why a gang would involve her. In 1999, on the 20th anniversary of the case, Detective Edward Moriarty announced the department had learned things in the case, things people were too afraid to say 20 years earlier, but now they were willing to talk. Moriarty reopened the case with Akron police officers Janet and Ed Matthews, a brother and sister who had grown up in North Hill about 10 years behind Ricky and Mary. They are the children of the elder Ed Matthews, a veteran of the force, and one of the case's early investigators. The Matthews offered a unique perspective. They had an intimate knowledge of the neighborhood, and they knew many people who were also friends of the Beards and Leonards. The families were excited about the new attention, especially the idea that kids who had grown up in their own backyard and went on to law enforcement careers were coming back home to put those skills to use. I really thought that they were going to actually be able to to give us positive answers. That's Nancy Flock, Mary's sister. I really felt that they were going to crack the case. Lieutenant Wooden referred questions about that part of the investigation to Janet Matthews. Matthews, who is retired now, 
declined to be interviewed for this podcast. She answered a few questions by email, but didn't want to speak directly about the still open investigation. Obviously, I cannot talk about details and won't, and I won't speculate, she wrote us. The family has been given false hope by others in the past, and it's painful to watch. I hope someone gets religion on their deathbed and we can get these families some closure. But that doesn't mean we don't know what she's thinking, because in 2006, Matthews participated in a television series called Sensing Murder, which featured the case in its first season. And during the show, Matthews revealed her favorite scenario, which again featured a motorcycle gang. She told producers she believes Marion Ricky made it home before curfew that Friday night in 1979. A neighbor said that while he didn't see them, he heard them giggling and talking on the steps in front of the Leonard home before midnight, and he saw Ricky's car parked in the street. Matthews believes it was there that someone came to get them, probably a friend of Ricky's who didn't raise any red flags, someone who was able to convince them to get back into the Chevy Impala without incident and either follow him or take him with them. The couple willingly went to the abandoned garage where Ricky's car was ultimately found, Matthews speculated, maybe expecting to party. The site was a farm off Portage Trail Extension near Northampton Road, right as Cuyahoga Falls descends into Akron's Merriman Valley. She said she's heard things about a local gang that dabbled in stealing motorcycles and dealing drugs, and that perhaps some of its members hung out at this garage. There, Ricky and Mary were ambushed killed for a reason Matthews couldn't specify, except that it may have been related to either drugs or the theft of a motorcycle. Their killers then transported their bodies nearly two miles away, dumping them in overgrowth off a rural stretch of Riverview Road, where their remains wouldn't be discovered for another six years. Lieutenant Whitten didn't investigate the Beard and Leonard case himself, but he did supervise some of its investigators. And without giving away what the department is still holding close to its chest, he offered a little more insight into the gang theory. There was uh, allegations of missing property that was taken from the motorcycle gang. I think there was some thought that uh, Ricky may have had something to do with that. He wasn't the prime person that actually took part in that, but I, you know, th- there was some talk that uh, he was being associated with the actual act itself and that uh, there was some, you know, the motorcycle gang wasn't too happy about getting their stuff taken. Could that be enough to warrant an outlaw gang ambushing and executing a 19-year-old recent high school graduate and his 17-year-old girlfriend? Ask the Beard siblings and you'd probably get the same reaction if you suggested aliens from outer space had targeted their brother. The Beard siblings say they are frustrated by the implications against Ricky's character. Bill Beard said if his brother was running with bikers or dealing drugs, his family surely would have noticed something. The, the why is the thing. Why would a motorcycle gang do that? They, had that? they just pick them off the street and say, hey, let's kill these people because we're a motorcycle gang. And they had to have some kind of reason. And there's no, no reason was ever, you know, presented or that we can come up with. He didn't have any money. He didn't have, you know, if he would have been involved in something, but had, you know, something, there'd been some kind of trail somewhere. 
Ricky's sister, Luann Eddy, said police put too much weight on the fact that her brother smoked marijuana. Because the police did search, they searched his bedroom and everything, you know. I mean, our family went through a lot with having the phone tapped and, you know, our house searched and things like that. And here, you know, our brother's a victim. And there's just no evidence of anything. And that's what Swain told me, too. He said, I, he said, I get it. I know they are talking about the motorcycle gang, but there's just absolutely nothing that points that way. Except I think some of the brutality of the death. The brutality of the death. That certainly made an impression on the coroner. It's also the reason the Leonards support the idea that if it wasn't an organized gang, Ricky must have done something to offend someone. They believe someone came to collect the couple from the front yard after they returned home that date night, but it wasn't someone with a friendly invitation. More likely, brothers Jerry and Tom Leonard said it was someone with a gun. They were down by the sidewalk and somebody pulled up, and yeah, I think there was a good chance that they were abducted right there by gunpoint. Mm-hmm. That makes more sense than anything I've ever heard. him, but she was there, so we're not leaving with us. Comments from neighbors, friends, and even family supported this idea. Mary's brother, Ron, said he thought he heard fireworks outside their home that night. After learning Ricky's car was found with a bullet hole in the windshield, he wondered if it was a warning shot. A neighbor said he heard a girl yelling, help me. Others reported hearing strange noises consistent with a scuffle. Ricky's siblings say he definitely could have rubbed someone wrong. He wasn't the kind of guy to back down from a fight. But a motorcycle gang, Luann asked? They wanted it to be the motorcycle gang because they were trying to get rid of these guys. They, they were bad guys, and the, that was the Akron police's focus at that moment. So, hey, here now we have a murder. They probably did it because there was absolutely nothing else that, that he could have been involved. He was 19. It was just out of high school. Wynn said bike clubs in Akron cause no trouble these days. But 30 to 40 years ago, they had a violent reputation. I can tell you that, you know, the only thing I can tell you is that they were looked at pretty heavily. That was a big lead at the beginning. And then, you know, even with the newer investigation uh, that happened uh, in the late 90s, that was a focus. That was a focus, you know, just because of the nature, you know, the nature of, you know, what, outlaw motorcycle gangs and the stuff that comes with that. The Matthews investigation looked closer at some of the people tied to the gangs in 1979. One by one, many of them were ruled out. Eventually, the files went back into the cold case closet, but it didn't stay there long. In 2006, yet another Akron officer who had long been haunted by the case, asked for permission to review the files. The late Robert Swain was a veteran of the force known for his irreverent sense of humor, the kind of guy who would celebrate his captain's birthday party by throwing water balloons at him, or swap a training video with a porno tape at the morning meeting to start the shift off with a chuckle. But Swain was as diligent and professional as they come, Lieutenant Wooden said, and he had a reason for feeling particularly close to the victims. 
When Ricky and Mary's skeletons were discovered, it was late in the day, and the forensic team had to make preparations for morning excavation. So a young patrolman Swain was put in charge of babysitting the bones. In 2006, Swain's assignment was to transport prisoners, a job his supervisors still needed him to do. He could reopen the case, they told him, but he'd have to do it on his own time. And so on evenings and weekends for the next four years, when Swain was done with his regular shift, he went to the detective bureau, pulled out those binders, and started doing things nobody else had done. Over the years, three jurisdictions had been involved in the case. One of them had since disbanded and had been absorbed by another. Files were lost in the transition. So Swain sought to recreate those files. He talked to first responders from the defunct Northampton Police Department. He found retired Akron officers who had spent time on the case. He located the foreman of the utility crew that found the bones. He asked the state crime lab to reanalyze all the physical evidence. He even spent months chasing down the fingerprints of a deceased suspect so he could compare it to an unidentified print in Ricky's car. At the conclusion, Swain said he could find no evidence that supported motorcycle gang involvement or prove rumors of stolen bikes or drug deals gone bad. What he did find was someone with means, motive, and opportunity. And in 2010, Bob Swain shared with his supervisors, as well as the Beards and Leonards, his theory of what happened on August 24th, 1979. Theory number two, the angry homeowner. Ricky and Mary's remains were found in an area used as a lover's lane by some local youths. The lane was actually a long driveway that led through woods and overgrowth up a winding incline into the home of a 60-year-old man who was a known alcoholic, had been discharged from the military for psychological problems, and had a history of threats of violence against others. He died in 1994, never having been formally interviewed by police, not even after he reportedly confessed to Ricky and Mary's murders. The man has never before been publicly discussed by investigators or the media, and we're not naming him here out of respect for his surviving family who declined to be interviewed. But Swain's investigation turned up some very disturbing facts. For starters, the utility crew foreman recalled how in the days leading up to the discovery of the bones, the homeowner was becoming increasingly belligerent toward workers digging a trench next to his property. On the day that the remains were ultimately found, the man was so upset he threatened to get his shotgun and shoot the crew if they didn't stop. In hindsight, the foreman said it seemed clear to him that the angry homeowner knew those bodies were there, that they had lain in the thick brush 30 feet from his driveway, 100 yards from his house for six years. And then his growing nervousness over the week was in direct response to how close the crew was getting. Police didn't even need to walk to the man's house to ask him about the discovery that was basically in his front yard. Because as soon as he saw police arrive, the homeowner walked down to them and promptly confessed. There is no record of this. If it indeed happened, 
That file disappeared over the years, as did others. But Swain believed it to be true for several reasons. For one, the homeowner had a history with the Northampton Township Police Department. Retired officers from that now-defunct force told Swain they were called out repeatedly because kids who had tried to use his concealed drive as a lover's lane saw the working end of his shotgun. He would come out and fire into the air to scare them off. Swain also recalled that back in 1985, he himself was told by a Northampton police officer whose name he could no longer remember that the homeowner had confessed to killing Ricky and Mary, but that Northampton disregarded the statement, attributing it to the man's mental history and drunkenness. Swain had trouble finding anyone else who remembered this until he had the chance to talk to the angry homeowner's brother. The man confirmed for Swain that his brother did indeed confess, but police didn't believe him and that he himself thought his brother was just off on a drunken rant. The brother repeated that story to Lieutenant Whidden. Whidden said it would be nice to have a written statement from someone, anyone, back in 1985 when all this is reported to have happened. Uh, nobody said that they had actually, you know, as far as like law enforcement and the investigation, nobody could verify that that actually happened. It was all secondhand. He was questioned very briefly when the remains were found back in 1985. He passed away um, in 1994. But um, I can tell you there is no uh, formal statement from this person in, in, in the file. And then there was a rather remarkable story told to Swain by a Northampton police officer. The retired officer said he'd visited the angry homeowner a few days after the bodies were found, and during that visit, the man said he remembered the night Ricky and Mary died. He said some kids had a big party on his property, and that when he walked down to the site that next morning, he found their bodies. He said he called the Summit County Sheriff's Department to report it and told them that there were other bodies buried all along the cistern. But he said the sheriff's office ignored him and never came out, so he just left the bodies down there for six years. The Northampton officer told Swain they looked to see if the sheriff's office had record of such a call six years earlier, but they couldn't find one. The officer said they never took the homeowner seriously anyway. Swain learned that the angry homeowner was familiar with the farm off Portage Trail where Ricky's car had been abandoned. There was a bar in the corner, one he might have frequented. And so Swain put together the following scenario. Ricky and Mary drove to the property to make out. The homeowner confronted them, Ricky mouthed off, and the homeowner shot Ricky, possibly accidentally as a warning shot or because he felt threatened. As Ricky turned to run from the gun, the man shot Ricky in the back, and as Mary fled, he finished emptying his six-shooter, hitting her three times. It would also explain why the homeowner didn't call 911 after hearing five or six gunshots in his front yard. Swain needed to explain the more extensive injuries to Mary, so he speculated Mary survived the initial gunshots, after all, two of the bullets hit her arm. 
and that the homeowner realized this as he dragged both of their bodies from the driveway 30 feet into the overgrowth. At that point, with his gun now empty, he could have pulled a knife. Ricky himself had his sheathed knife on him when he died. The homeowner might have carried something like that routinely himself. Maybe he used it to finish the job. As to Mary's chipped tooth, fractured arm, and cracked sternum, the coroner had told Swain the injuries weren't so severe as to indicate intentional torture. So Swain theorized those injuries might have been caused by being dragged. The deed done, the homeowner could have driven Ricky's car the 1.7 miles to the abandoned farm garage where it was found. He could have walked back home, or he might have gone to the bar in the corner and placed a call or asked someone he knew for a ride. But like every theory with this case, Swain's scenario has serious holes in it. When Ricky's car was found, there were several prints lifted, prints that have never been matched to anyone. Police have long hoped they were left behind by the killer, though there is no way to know. Swain spent months trying to locate the angry homeowner's prints and eventually found them on file with the Veterans Administration, but they didn't match. His theory also doesn't explain how a bullet hole got into Ricky's car. The trajectory put a shooter in the back seat, gun hand low, firing up through the seat and front windshield. But what possible reason would the homeowner have for climbing into Ricky's back seat? Swain had an answer for that. He had a statement from a woman who reported seeing a bullet hole in Ricky's car four days before the couple disappeared. She noticed it because on that day, a young man from her street was having a screaming match with a boy she didn't know. And she went outside to shoo them from the front of her house and noticed the stranger standing next to a car with a bullet hole in the windshield. Four days later, when the media started reporting that Ricky and Mary were missing, she recognized a stranger that had been fighting with her neighbor. It was Ricky. Luann Eddy and Bill Beard, however, said they don't believe their brother was driving around with a bullet hole in his seat and windshield without anyone noticing for four days. Is there any chance that bullet hole was in the car from before, that Ricky would have bought the car and it had a bullet hole in no, it? No, no, no. All right, absolutely fresh. And my dad would have noticed that because he noticed every, like, every little thing about your car. You know, what's that on your car? Or, you know, wash your car, whatever. <laughs> he would have noticed. Okay, all right. Yeah, that was not there before that day. That, 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 was, that bullet hole was put in that car that Friday evening. Ricky and Mary's friends told police that the couple left the drive-in that night because Mary had to be home in time for her midnight curfew. And Frank Ronka, the man who lived next door to the Leonards, said he heard them in the front yard giggling and talking and saw Ricky's car parked in the street. If all of that is true, how did Ricky and Mary end up several miles away from home and after the curfew, they had made every effort to keep? Swain's answer was that the neighbor was mistaken, that perhaps Ronka was remembering another night, 
since Ricky and Mary often sat on the front porch steps while he was visiting. While at least one littered sibling has wondered the same thing over the years, today they are largely united in the belief that their sister made it home safely that night before something went terribly wrong. And if Ricky and Mary don't voluntarily go to the angry homeowner's drive, well, the angry homeowner surely wasn't driving to North Hill to get them. Lieutenant Whitten said we'll likely never know if the angry homeowner did it, but it's as good a guess as any. I'm sure there are several theories that have come and gone over the years. Where does this theory of this gentleman being involved rank to you personally among all the theories? Uh, I think it's very strong. Most of it now at this point is circumstantial. But I think if you look at, uh, you know, looking back based on my experience now, how we look at cases, I think it's just as good, if not better, than anything else that, that has been looked at. While the Leonards lean toward the motorcycle gang theory, the Beards think the angry homeowner makes much more sense. Swain talked to both families regularly, and Luann Eddy was impressed with his conclusion. I think that's the most logical and it, it has a full beginning and end, like how, how things would have transpired, like how the car got where it was, um, why he reacted so violently almost when the backhoe driver was digging up the property. Um, his brother also, I guess, got an attitude with them and with the police. It's the only thing that has followed through and made sense the whole way through. If, if, if any of this can make sense, it's the only thing that has. So, I mean, maybe we have to go with that. I don't know. But yeah, there are still holes in every story. There's one more theory. A surprise that reared its potential head in 2010. And while it hasn't won a big fan base yet, it's chilling enough to warrant discussion. Theory number three, the serial killer. You may not have heard of Edward Wayne Edwards, even if he once wrote about how much he wanted to be famous for his crimes. He was born in Akron in 1933. By 1961, he was on the FBI's list of 10 most wanted fugitives, mostly for holding up gas stations. Edwards eventually was caught and served time in prison. And when he got out, he claimed to be reformed, authored a book, and lectured about his metamorphosis. In 1972, his story even landed him on the TV show To Tell the Truth, where a celebrity panel had to guess which of three men was the real Ed Edwards. Here's the TV host describing Edwards. And here is the extraordinary story of Ed Edwards. I think you'll find it profitable. It says, I, Ed Edwards, was once on the FBI's list of the 10 most wanted criminals in America. Now I am a respected citizen in my community. Here's the story of my dramatic turnabout. As a young boy, I felt that the only way I could gain any recognition was to steal. Eventually, I committed armed robberies, impersonated a federal officer, and was sought for questioning about a double murder. 
I spent time in the federal penitentiaries in Leavenworth and Lewisburg. It was at the latter prison that I started vocational training and very slowly began to realize that I could still be somebody and return to my rightful and legal place in society. There is a tremendous need for communication between parents and their children. I stress this point in my book, which is titled Metamorphosis of a Criminal, signed Ed Edwards. After the real Edwards was revealed, he explained more about what motivated him to a life of crime. Ed, there's one important point. You and I were chatting backstage, and I asked you what was your reaction in your neighborhood when you came out of the reformatory the first time. Uh, were you were you put down by your by your your fellow citizens, or did they look up to you? Uh, no. When I was released from the reformatory, uh, they looked up to me, and this uh, motivated me to go on to bigger things because this is why I was out there committing the crime was for the recognition. Mm-hmm. And this happens because a lot of things, people think it's a big shot thing to do, huh? Uh, yes, this is the, uh, they, the more trouble you get into, the bigger you are in their eyes. Here's the thing. It's possible, some say quite likely, that Edwards had already begun a career as a serial killer, specializing in the murder of teenage couples making out in cars. He was married and had five kids, but the happy family life he tried to portray hid a darker side. This all came out in 2009. That's when Edward's daughter called authorities. She thought her father was responsible for the 1980 murder of a pair of teenage sweethearts in Wisconsin. Timothy Hack and Kelly Drew were 19 when they left a wedding reception but never made it home. Their bodies were found three months later in the woods. Drew had been raped and strangled. Hack had been stabbed in the chest and back. When authorities followed up on the tip of Edward's daughter, they found a 76-year-old man sick and on oxygen. They obtained a DNA sample. It matched the DNA found on Kelly Drew's clothes. Edwards knew it was all over for him, but he wanted to finish his life in Ohio. In April of 2010, Edwards made a special request of his Wisconsin jailers. He indicated to the Wisconsin detectives that he wanted to call us because he wanted to confess to an Akron case, which, of course, you know, got us all excited. We were hoping that it was uh, this case, the Beard and Leonard case. And on April 20th, 2010, Bob and I did a phone interview with him. He was in custody up in Wisconsin, and we were, you know, ready, prepared to take a recorded confession over the phone. Well, it's not our, the, Mary, uh, the Beard Leonard case he confessed to. It was a case of Norton. An unsolved homicide from 1977. It didn't involve two people. Whitten is talking about the murders of 21-year-old William Lavico and 18-year-old Judith Straub. You see, the Akron area had two famous sweetheart murders from the 1970s. This was the other one. In 1977, Lavico and Straub were found at Silver Creek Metro Park in Norton, having been shot point-blank with a 20-gauge shotgun. Edwards, who was living in nearby Doylestown at the time, said he'd done that. And so Edwards took a plea deal that would allow him to serve the rest of his life in an Ohio prison. The day after the sentencing, he called Officer Swain again with yet another confession. He wanted to admit to a fifth murder in 1996, a young man named Danny Boy Edwards. 
Danny Boy had taken Edward's last name after Ed Edwards and his wife took him in. But all along, the killer was simply executing a year-long plan to kill Danny Boy to collect an insurance policy. So here he had confessed to us to two murders, one of the one, the one in Norton, and then he gets sentenced, then he confesses to a one in Geauga County. So he, we thought he was being genuine. He made specific mention, he goes, I know these, you know these kids' families want closure, so why wouldn't I give them that? At this point, why wouldn't I, if I did it, why wouldn't I had confessed to it? And I know Bob, Bob was convinced, Bob Swain, he was convinced that, uh, you know, Ed, Ed, Ed Edwards wasn't involved. But it's worth noting that there was strategy behind Edwards' confessions. He admitted to the Norton murders because he wanted to come home to Ohio, but also because he wanted the death penalty. When he learned Ohio didn't have a death penalty in the late 1970s, authorities convinced him to reveal a later Ohio murder that would qualify. That's when he confessed to Danny Boy. There was no strategic value in confessing to any other Ohio murders from the 1970s. And so Edwards got his death penalty. His execution was scheduled for August of 2011. He didn't make it. He died of natural causes that April. The daughter who turned him in, April Bellasio, is not convinced her father told all. Bellasio declined to be interviewed for this podcast. She was under contract for another podcast that is airing right now about her father. It's called The Clearing. And at the time we're recording this podcast, the weekly series has not yet brought up the Beard and Leonard deaths. In The Clearing, Bellasio talked about how her family moved often at a moment's notice. She's convinced her father left bodies behind every time they changed addresses. She and others wonder if Edwards might have been involved in the 1960 murders of Beverly Allen and Larry Payton in Portland, Oregon, and the 1956 murders of Patty Kalitsky and Dwayne Bogle in Great Falls, Montana. Edwards lived in both cities at the time of those murders, and authorities actually considered him in both cases. In both cases, they were teenage sweethearts parked on lovers' lanes. One of them had been on a date to the movies. One of them had a bullet hole in the windshield of their car, shot from inside. It's hard to ignore the similarities to the Beard and Leonard case. And those two couples that Edwards was convicted of killing? They both happened in August, a month that Edwards' daughter said was very significant in her father's life for a variety of reasons. In August of 1979, when Ricky and Mary were killed, Edwards and his family were living in Florida, but there's no doubt the man knew how to travel. During his redemption phase, he admitted to crimes in 19 different states. And he was very familiar with Akron's North Hill neighborhood, he once lived there, on Avon Street, right across the street from Mary Leonard's cousin. Mary's cousin even babysat for him once, but only once. Mary's sister, Nancy Flock, tells the story. And she had an eerie feeling about yeah, him. Bad leaves. Because when, when she was dating her husband, present husband, um, he was sitting on his front porch when she'd come home from the date smoking a cigarette and she felt that after um, Willie had left 
she, her bedroom was in the back of the house on the corner, and she heard noises, and she felt he was stalking her. That's the only episode she had with him, but she just didn't have good vibes, and that's why she quit. She would not babysit for him anymore because she just Creep had this right. creepy feeling about him. Mary's sister, Kathy, knew another story involving her cousin and the neighbor who would become a serial killer. He came in, he showed up in their living room one time. Yes. I remember Aunt Mary was in the kitchen. I don't know whether the kids were home or not, but Aunt Mary comes in because she hears noise, and this man standing in her living room, you know, and at that time we didn't lock doors. And she says, Lord knows what would have happened had she not walked into the room when she heard her mom say, what are you doing in my house? And he was saying something about why isn't she allowed to babysit or something, yeah. something like that. Yeah. Still, the Beards and the Linners don't like this theory. They trust Officer Swain's intuition. Lieutenant Whidden does, too. Bob actually, Bob Swain actually uh, struck up a relationship with him. They hit it off. It was kind of interesting. They, you know, Ed Edwards is an older gentleman. Bob was kind of older, and they kind of, I think they had uh, a connection. And during that conversation that we had with him in April, it was clear that they, they, they really, I think Ed t- trusted Bob. It ultimately, there's another after the day after the plea that he took on uh, June June 11 to 2010. The next day, he called Bob from the jail, and uh, he says, "Look, at this point, I'm sentenced to two life sentences. I would tell you if I killed those two, I would tell you. What do I have to lose?" And uh, Bob believed him. I, I did too. I- Edward's daughter reached out to Akron police and families earlier this year to explore the possibility that her father was involved. Luann Eddy spoke with her. She is. She was trying to pin down the exact dates of when it happened so that she could pin down whether her dad could have been here at that time. She kind of thought that they were driving from Florida to Colorado and they still had family here. She thinks it's possible they did stop here for a couple days, but they can't. They cannot pin down the dates, and, I, and the mother I don't think wants to talk about it anymore, which I don't blame her. But I, April, I think is just trying to resolve things for herself, which is understandable. In the clearing, April said her father was a charmer, but also a pathological liar. He lied about things as great as his murder, but as small as insisting he made dinner when his guests could see the Kentucky Fried Chicken boxes in the trash. Lying was a way of life. He was also a master manipulator. The only murders Edwards confessed to achieved a specific goal, get to Ohio, get the death penalty. So those are the three theories all so very different from each other. The motorcycle gang slighted over some missing property or a drug deal gone bad. An angry homeowner who may have just meant to frighten lovers off his property. A serial killer who returned to his old neighborhood for a quick and bloody fix. Or something else entirely. What do you think the chances are that it will be solved? Well, I'm hoping that uh, I'm hoping that you know what you're doing. I think is a great thing that I wish we can do with every single case is let the public know that this isn't forgotten. 
even this back and somebody I mean somebody's know something right somebody has to know something whether it's just the person that did this and don't forget I mean we're not limiting this being one person I know we've talked a lot about uh, focusing on one person but that's not to say that more people aren't involved and usually when that happens somebody more than one person that's even better so uh, my fear is possibly that a lot of people that have information might be deceased now that's one of the things you know you have to be you have to think about unfortunately time keeps going on and people get older and um, but I'm also hoping maybe that somebody who has information thinks about the family thinks about these families that have gone on all these years without any answers yeah we we know we found them but what happened to them why did this happen it's well beyond time that, uh, you know, I would put yourself in the position of family members to think about what you would be going through if it was with your loved one. And if you have any information about however you think it might be irrelevant, any information at all about this, please call us, uh, Crimes Against Persons Unit, Akron Police Department, 330-375-2463, 24 hours a day. You can get a hold of us and leave information. Um, we have a tip line you can leave information on through that number. Uh, look, it's been it's been a long time, and um, there's been a lot of uh, investigative work put into this case, and we're just looking to give the family some closure finally as a result of this tragic incident. This podcast was done in conjunction with the Akron Beacon Journal and Ohio.com. Find photographs, maps, videos, timelines, newspaper clippings, and more in the Beacon Journal print edition online at Ohio.com, as well as on our website, OhioMysteries.com. Additional editing for the series by Cheryl Powell. Audio mixed by Steve Yoder. We'd also like to extend our gratitude to News Channel 5 in Cleveland for archived audio content and to the many talented musical artists who offer their work through a Creative Commons license. Please see our episode notes for links to our main theme music, Wasteland by Ross Bugden, and all the music used in this series. Find more Ohio Mysteries episodes on our website or through your favorite podcast app. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Patreon. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the facts from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. 
I hope to see you soon.